0: today on CityCast Denver. It's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and we're looking back into Denver's fascinating Japanese American history.
1: You know, my wife's family owned one of the three, I think, supermarkets on Larimer, heading into Rhino, and it's now a brew pub.
0: There's the old Japantown in Five Points, the constitutionalist governor who left a lasting legacy, and so many more stories of Japanese American history right here in Denver.
1: Yeah, and it's it's really only a generation back, and, and, and yet people have completely forgotten that this used to exist.
0: Today is Tuesday, May 11th, 2021. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. Let's take a look at the news. Be prepared for more weird Colorado spring weather with a high of 42 and a mix of rain and snow throughout the day. Bruce Randolph Jr., founder of Daddy Bruce's Barbecue in Boulder, passed away this month at the age of 94. The barbecue establishment was named after his late father, Daddy Bruce, a Denver culinary fixture for decades who was known for serving up hot meals to those in need. University of Colorado President Mark Kennedy is stepping down after two controversial years on the job. The move comes weeks after CU Boulder faculty formally reprimanded him for an alleged failure of leadership with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion. But it sounds like an amicable split. Good news, music fans and fans of hanging out on South Broadway. The Underground Music Showcase is back. Dozens of local and national bands will return to the Baker neighborhood this August for a late summer edition of the Music Festival. Line up and more information to come. Denver often gets passed off as this really white city. But we have such a rich history of communities of color and cultures that informs who we are. Like, did you know parts of what is now Rhino used to be a significant part of Denver's thriving Japanese community? Take the Matchbox on 26th and Larimer, for example. It used to be a Japanese grocery store. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and to mark it, we wanted to dive into this history with a guy who's been researching it for decades. Yeah, I was excited about this interview because I'm an I'm an old westwarder too, but you're like old school westward. You know the, you know the real dirt.
1: <laughs> I was uh, I was the first person that Patty hired.
0: I can't even imagine. Gil Asakawa has been a staple in the Denver journalism scene since I was a kid. He's also been an advocate and educator for Japanese culture and history in Denver for most of his life. But before we jump into our conversation with Gil, a quick disclaimer. There are a few mentions of violence against the Asian American community in this episode. So, Gil, we're going to talk about the history of Denver's Japanese-American community. But before we get into it, I would love to hear your thoughts on why you think it's important for people to know this story right now.
1: Well, you know, obviously, there's been this huge, huge explosion of anti-Asian hate uh, aimed at all flavors of Asians, right, since uh, last year, 2020. And (laughs) this is May. This is Asian-American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And uh, it's it's a month where we should be celebrating. We we shouldn't have to be looking around and making sure we're not about to get pounced on, or have somebody spit on us, or yell something, you know, um, racist towards us. But I think this is why it's important to talk about the the roots and the history and the heritage of all the Asian communities. And I think it's worth celebrating. And I think it's it's worth remembering that we've been part of the story of Denver uh, for a long time.
0: Okay, so when I think about Denver's Japanese-American community, I think of Sakura Square, which is that block downtown with the Buddhist temple and the Japanese grocery store. I know you moved to Denver around the time it was built in the early 70s, so I'd love to start by hearing what that place means to you personally.
1: Sakura Square is the, it really is the hub of the community. It's where Japanese Americans and Japanese immigrants, frankly, come and congregate to do their shopping at Pacific Mercantile, which is a a, a supermarket that's owned and operated by the third generation of the same family. And so for my family, we moved from northern Virginia to Lakewood into a suburban area by uh, what was then the Villa Italia shopping mall, and once a week... We would move, drive to downtown Denver to Sakura Square, which had just been built. And my mom used to make these things called mochi manju. as a mochi with a sweet bean paste inside. And then we would put them in trays. She'd put them in a plastic bag. And we'd drive a bunch of these down to Pacific Mercantile. and uh, And then my mom would do shopping for the week. And it was, you know, you go to a place that's, primarily not your ethnicity. And then you go to a place that is all you. <laughs> I mean, you, you look at people and you see yourself reflected. Um, it feels like going home. And for the Japanese American community, uh, those businesses, those neighborhoods, that area uh, of lower downtown and that part of downtown stretching out to the Rhino District where for decades there were lots and lots of Japanese and Japanese American owned businesses, that was home.
0: Yeah, and I had no idea that it, had, it stretched even into what is now known as Rhino. Um, I, I had no idea. I just know the you know I know the block. I know the one block where the Mercantile is and the temple is. And and you said the temple has been here for a hundred years, right?
1: Yeah, over a hundred years. They celebrated their hundredth year what like four or five years ago.
0: That's incredible. And could you could you tell a little bit of that that backstory of or just in terms of when the story of Japanese people in Denver really began?
1: Sure. You know, the first Asians in Denver of any significance were the Chinese. Uh, You know, there's this famous uh, or not maybe not so famous for most people, anti-Chinese race riot on October 31st, 1880, uh, where a Chinese man was beaten to death and hung from a a lamppost. That race riot was used by authorities to help pass the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Law, which prohibited any new immigration of Chinese to the United States. So what happens is, by the late 1880s, Americans, like white landowners, suddenly realized, oh, we need some cheap labor. We're not getting a lot of new Chinese, so let's let some uh, Japanese in. They'll probably work harder. They'll do, they'll be great. And so that's when the Japanese first started coming to the United States. The first Japanese arrived in Colorado in the late 1800s, but really not of any significant population. But then by 1910, there were 2,300, so over 2,000 people. Uh, And then a community started to form. And a lot of the times you see communities of color and, and immigrant communities migrating, so to speak, to the same neighborhoods that previous communities of color have lived in. And that's because of redlining, right? That there were uh, all these um, uh, restrictions on who can live where. And so that's why you see uh, African-Americans, you know, that's why Five Points ended up being where it is. And that's why the Japanese kind of the Japantown business district stretched out along Larimer but did not go into downtown, you know, and so a lot of families get settled here. There's kind of a joke. My wife's family, she grew up in Denver and both sides of her family came to Denver after World War II. There's kind of a running joke that in Denver, there are really only like five Japanese families. (laughs) Everybody's related by marriage or blood, you know.
0: Yeah, and that, that actually kind of goes right into my next question, because I know from a presentation of yours I watched, I loved the, the yearbook pictures um, of Manuel High School and all of the Japanese-American students, the Nisei students there. And I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that influx of Japanese um, people because of World War II and Governor Ralph Carr and his, his role in, in embracing the Japanese community.
1: You know, one of the things about the Japanese community here is how much it is a a legacy of Governor Ralph Carr, who uh, in the 1930s, uh, early 1930s, he was a small town lawyer in southern Colorado, and then he moved to Denver. And he was often spoken of and mentioned as a future Republican presidential candidate. But when World War II started, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, immediately kind of the tenor of hate speech and hate crimes against Japanese were sparked. And then on February 19, 1942, when President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which allowed the U.S. military to designate uh, military exclusion zones for national security reasons. And basically gave them the excuse to round up all Japanese, anybody of Japanese descent. Now, that's the part where Ralph Carr, who was by then the governor of Colorado, Ralph Carr had a problem with that because he was a constitutionalist. And he said, this is wrong. This is illegal. We shouldn't be doing this. Um, It's not so much, I think, that he had a love for Japanese. I, I I wouldn't say that he was defending Japanese nationals. But he thought it was just flat out wrong to round up American citizens of Japanese ancestry. So he made a public statement that people of Japanese descent should feel, you know, welcome to come to Colorado and stay in Colorado and that they wouldn't be rounded up. And, you know, I have known people who did come. Their families came to Denver you know, at Ralph Carr's invitation, or came to Colorado, and uh, started farms or went to work. So Japanese Americans have a great deal of respect for the legacy of, of Ralph Carr. The problem was that he, by doing this, not only did a lot of people hate him, he got hate mail, he got death threats. And, and so by doing all this, He kind of ruined his political career. Today, there's a bust of of Ralph Carr in the plaza area of Sakura Square. It's one of three busts and statues commemorating people uh, that were important to our community.
0: And as you mentioned... May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. So um, for listeners who hear this story and want to celebrate and support the community, what are some things that you could recommend?
1: Well, there's um, there isn't a lot this year because of COVID, (laughs) you know, still uh, still dogging us. But um, there's always lots of ways that you can support the Asian community. Number one, go eat Asian food. At a locally owned, Asian-owned restaurant of any flavor, any ethnicity, any heritage, any cuisine, uh, and then go back.
0: Do you have a Do you have a favorite restaurant, Gil, or a favorite a place you want to shout out that you go to pretty often?
1: I have a lot of favorite restaurants. <laughs> There's a, a ramen restaurant called Ramen Star. He he makes his own. Ramen noodles every morning. Uh, that's really good. Um, there's a couple of good um, sushi restaurants, some Chinese restaurants. Uh, actually, if you follow me on Facebook I take pic- or Instagram, I take pictures of all the foods. So uh, take a look.
0: <laughs> and ra- ramen stars at 40th and Tejon. And I was just thinking, my, my friend Rosie, who's like my um, Japanese-American food expert friend, just texted me yesterday and was like, okay... I found the ramen spot. It's called Ramen Star. It's got the best ramen, and now I've got a second from Gil, so I know it's legit. It's
1: legit. It's it's really legit. It's he's really good, and it's a small operation. And I'd love for people to support him.
0: Well, thank you so much, Gil. This has been wonderful.
1: Sure, no problem.
0: That's all for today here on Cast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell a friend about us, rate the show wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to our delightful morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Later. That's the punchline. Snow.